Well, good morning. Welcome to The Rock this morning. My name's Clay, if we haven't met before. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak a bit more this week. I shared last week as well. I'm going to speak a bit more on the topic of generosity and giving. And uh, if you knew me a few years ago, you'd know that I used to be quite loath to hear or share messages on giving because I hated the idea that the churches are all, because churches want your money. And I didn't like that idea of money being a stumbling block, getting in the way of receiving the gospel and receiving, receiving the truth. So I used to think it's best not to talk about it because it's a stumbling block. Well, the best thing to do with the stumbling block is to pick it up and get rid of it. See, Jesus didn't have a problem talking about money. And he saw what a stumbling block it was in people's lives. So we spoke to it directly. So we're going to speak to it directly today. And the more I reflect on my life and what God's done for me, I, I come to a place now where I, I love speaking on generosity and giving. As I reflect on so many testimonies in my life of God's generosity and his generosity in his people. I've experienced so much. And I want you to experience the same thing that I have. And we will experience amazing things together as we allow God to pull out this stumbling block and become generous like he is. It's awesome. I was thinking about illustrations of what, you know, what highlights what we're, what we're talking about here. And one of the first things that happens when I walk in the door is I get given uh, tickets to this afternoon's uh, Firebirds versus Canterbury cricket game. I can't use these, and I'd love to because I love the cricket. But I, I get given stuff all the time, and not because of what I do here. Just I'm around generous people who are in the habit of just just giving. Uh, so someone needs to go to the cricket this afternoon. Anyone want to go to this game? This will be really good. Um, you know, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put these here, and someone's going to go to the cricket. I've got three tickets here to the cricket. Uh, I was I had several phone calls yesterday trying to plan a, uh, uh, a road trip down south with my family, taking um, Lisa and the kids down to see my grandmother and and Alexandra, and I just got all these offers for for free accommodation, and uh, I just love uh, living in God's generosity, and I find the more that I trust in Him, just just stuff happens. And that's not because, and I don't believe this is because I have sown seeds of generosity. I believe God is generous regardless. I don't have to convince him to do good things for me. I don't have to put some money in the, um, in the spiritual bank so that I get a return on it. God is generous no matter what I do. And I love that about him. So last week I spoke about what true generosity is and what it means to have a generous heart. I talked about the conflict in our hearts between loving God 
and loving stuff. And it's hard for us because we grow up in a pervasive culture here in New Zealand that is very materialistic. And I am materialistic. I, I, I fight this all the time. That phone, that car, that guitar. I tell myself, these are things that I need. But they're things that are getting in the way. I talked about how materialism inherent to our society can be so destructive, but coming into a revelation of true generosity can be so liberating. Now, what I want to discuss this morning is how the church in the New Testament made generosity a radical lifestyle, a lifestyle that defined the way that they treated each other and how they demonstrated that selfless love to God and to each other, the love that he had poured out into them. The kind of thing that the radical lifestyle I'm talking about is just as radical, if not more so today, as we're probably living in the most materialistic time we ever have. So I want us to start the story of radical giving in Acts chapter 2. So if you've got scripture with you, why don't you turn with me to Acts chapter 2. The radical giving of the church. For me, I believe it starts in Acts chapter 2. From verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. A little later on in the chapter, it starts to actually speak about, about giving. But the story of radical giving in the church doesn't start with the church giving. It starts with God giving. And God didn't give them money in this story. He gave them something so, oh, so much more valuable than anything material. He gave them his Holy Spirit. He gave them a deposit of himself to dwell in them and empower them and empower them not, not just to speak in tongues and perform miracles. He gave them his Spirit to empower them to change. And I personally believe there is no greater miracle than that. Water to wine, that's cool. That'd go down well at a party. And apparently it did. But that is nothing compared to the power to change, to become someone that you weren't before. To come, to change from someone who was opposed to the will of God, completely selfish, to be shaped into the likeness 
of Christ. That is the miracle I want in my life. And that is the gift that God gave them, his spirit. And that is a gift that keeps on giving. The fruit of that gift. Acts chapter 2, 44-45. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Acts chapter 4, 34-37. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Kind of, what kind of a person sells property and gives the money to the church for the poor? Who sells, who sells a house? Who sells land and gives that away? Who does that? Crazy hippies? People who have rejected society? Well, yeah, actually. People who have rejected this society, rejected its values, and adopted something completely different, something completely radical. Spirit-filled disciples of Jesus can do anything that the Spirit prompts them. Wealth doesn't have a hold on them. They're not like other people. They have a mind that is, that is being renewed, a mind that gives them a completely different perspective on wealth and possessions. And what is really important in life? Now, we are indoctrinated from when we are little kids to what holds real value in this world. We grow up through education system, through school, and the, what we're taught and, the, and the, the influence of those around us shapes us to value material possession. Money. If we have onto it parents, they'll teach us about being financially prudent and saving and investing, and they they want us to do well financially. They want us to be secure financially because that is what is important in this world, and that becomes a part of us. It shapes the way we think. Real value is in wealth, material wealth. And as ingrained as that becomes in our consciousness, behind our consciousness, imprinted on the back of our heads, how hard do you think it is for that, cha that, cha that thinking to be changed? Quite hard, it turns out. For some of us, impossible. We can't get past this idea of what's really important. And so this becomes a stumbling block. 
And it seems like it always has been the case, as Jesus found in his ministry. When he talked to a rich young man who was trying to live his life to honor God, but there was one thing that was missing. There was one thing that was more important to him than honoring God. And that was the security that he was bound to in his wealth. And so when Jesus pointed that out to him, the man walked away downcast because he knew that he wasn't in a place to let that go yet. In the book of Acts, Luke describes the practices of the church born under the empowerment and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Church under the leadership of the apostles who sat under the teaching and ministry of Jesus himself. And generosity was one of the foundational practices of this church. Right up there with teaching and prayer and fellowship and worship. Generosity was a part of their DNA. But it's not a religious habit. It must be an outworking of a revealed truth and the outworking of God's love in us. Without this revelation, selling our possessions to care for each other's material needs would just be written off as insanity by most. And regular giving to the church is written off as religious or irrelevant. A throwback to a different time and a different covenant. This radical lifestyle doesn't really fit with our worldview, with our perspective on life. And I know this. Our head screams, it's mine. I earned it. Why should I give it away? But the issue, I think, starts with this perspective on property and ownership. This idea that it's, that it's ours. King David understood the truth. And he had this beautiful prayer in First Chronicles chapter 29. From verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you, and you are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, O God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord, our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things have I given willingly and with honest intent. 
and now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. What a beautiful prayer. David dreamed about building his God a temple. He loved his God and he wanted to give this thing back to him. But God wouldn't let him. David had bloody, messy hands. His calling in life required him to kill. And the Lord didn't want those bloody hands on his holy place. But he allowed David the not-so-glamorous task of fundraising. That was his part of the project. He didn't get the glory. He didn't get to build anything. He got to put the money together. And he loved it. It was an honor to bring the resource together. It was an honor to to get all the, the cedars down from Lebanon. It was an honor to pull together the gold, the the purple fabrics. It was that that was awesome for him to honor God in that way. It wasn't a burden. It wasn't even like a sacrifice. It was just an overflow of his love for God. We give to God for a lot of reasons. And in a lot of ways. We give for the ministry of his kingdom. We give to him for the care of the needy. We give to we give to him to build his house. But ultimately, we give to him because it's his. And that is the understanding we need to come to. There are some who would argue, and I've talked this through with a number of people who argue, this is just another Old Testament verse about giving. I live under a new covenant, not the law of Moses. Well, firstly, whatever your your revelation of the relevance of the law of Moses to the church today, Paul makes it abundantly clear in Romans chapter 2 that God's law is written on our hearts. And our consciences bear witness to this. And his spirit speaks to us. And it seems for a lot of people it's easier to ignore the still voice of the spirit within you than it is to ignore words on a page. Our duty is to be generous and to love God and our neighbor with everything that God has given us. We don't need to have that in black and white, though it is there for us as well. This is in us. But secondly, the wealth that David gave for building the temple wasn't a requirement of the law. It was an overflow of adoration and honor to God expressed through financial giving which is exactly what New Testament giving is as well. An overflow of love, an overflow of our honor for him, our worship. Worship in the root of the English is our worthiness, his worship. Our, our worship is a response to his worth, our perception of that. It is worship to give to him. New Testament giving and overflow. So we go back to the New Testament. The consistent teaching and practice of the apostles and the early church they helped build 
was generous giving. And when I say consistent, I mean 10 specific narrative references and acts and a specific narrative or teaching in each of Paul's letters to the Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, where he writes 1,300 words on the subject, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy and Titus, plus further references in Hebrews, James, and 1 John. I cannot think of an, any other particular practice that the New Testament speaks more about than giving. So why is it such a stumbling block for us? Why don't we want to hear about it? Why do our minds shut it off? And it's like, oh, they're talking about money again. Well, firstly, we very, very rarely speak about money. People don't like it. But also God's given us other things to talk about, except that we feel this month that this is something that God wants us to talk about. Though it actually isn't really about money at all. It's actually about our heart. It's about true generosity. Money is the stumbling block in that for us, it seems. But there are, there are many reasons why people make choices which are ungenerous. Now, I can think of lots because I think of all the times that I've made a choice that was ungenerous. I know of people who will withhold giving when they are feeling uh, unsettled or uncertain in the direction of the church, or if they disagree with a leadership decision. Some people withhold giving when they have concerns about how money will be spent, how it will be stewarded. What are they going to do with it? I know people who have had serious questions uh, about their giving after a, a, a red couch was purchased by our church. It's kind of funky couch. And some people decided that wasn't that wasn't that wasn't the best use of their money. A couch. The couch was you know purchased for people to sit on. It was functional and you know, it was to offer hospitality. But people were making a decision about well, that's not how I want my money spent because it's my money. Even after I've given it, it's still mine. Maybe you have questioned your financial support to the church when you disagreed with how you perceived the resources were being used. Now here's the question to consider. When you tithe or put money in the church offering, are you giving as investors to a board of directors who are accountable to you as shareholders? Is that the mindset you approach your giving? Maybe you approach giving uh, as subscribers to a religious service provider. I know I, I subscribe to uh, an internet service provider, and when they no longer uh, service my needs adequately, well, I cancel my subscription and I go somewhere else. People do that in church too. Ah, it's not quite giving me the service I want, so I'm going to go somewhere else and uh, find uh, a better service provider. I'll, and... Uh, Maybe I'll start up a subscription there. Does our giving come with strings attached? With caveats on how it must be used? Or are we giving to God and releasing it fully to Him to do with as He pleases? 
allowing him to entrust it to whomever he pleases. The renewed perspective, of course, is that we are we are giving to God. It is part of our worship. It is part of the way that we honor him with our finances. It's also, it's also obedience. It's also alignment and participation with his ongoing mission here on earth. And once we understand this, that we are actually giving to him, well then, the next revelation follows. And this one's a harder one for me because I have struggled with authority pretty much my whole life. I don't like people being over me. I do not like being told what to do. And so authority is hard. And I would prefer it if there wasn't authority in the church because it would be easier for me in my flesh. I'm okay with God being the boss, but I'd prefer just to hear everything directly from him and uh, uh, not through someone else. Thank you. And uh, unfortunately for me, it seems like God hasn't really organized the church around my preferences. Or what I would find more convenient. And so, inconveniently, uh, God does establish authority in his church. And he gives different people different gifts. And he gives different people different measures of faith. Gives different people different measures of leadership. And he calls people and installs people in his church to lead others, to disciple others, to model things for others, to lead people, lead people into revelation, to teach, to pastor, to administer. And according to the gifts that he has given us, by the grace he has given us, leaders ideally try to honor that gift and that call and serve with integrity, serve with diligence, serve with industry, serve with faith. And some of these people are given authority to administer the financial resources of the church. And part of trusting God and the way he moves in the church is trusting the people that he raises up to do that and not second-guessing every decision they make. Trusting God and trusting his leaders means actually releasing our offering when we give it rather than just rather than holding on to it in our mind and questioning and challenging how it's used. Now, that's not to say that I believe there shouldn't be transparency in church finances. To the contrary, I believe that we should be more transparent than any organization in the world. I believe light is the best sanctifier. My God is light, and I like to, I like to shine light on things so that people can, can see that we have integrity. And so I am very encouraged that there is crystal clear transparency on, on how finances are used here. I, I take comfort in that because it's a protection for me and for others rather than protecting the money here. That's, that's fine. I strongly believe that there should be transparency. I believe that there should be appropriate checks and balances and there are on the finances here at The Rock. I also don't believe that, that the leaders who administer the funds shouldn't be uh, 
accountable. They are accountable here. There's a, there's a great supportive network of, of accountability and oversight. And that's not the same as everyone jumping all over our leaders and questioning every decision, but there is really solid oversight here. But there also needs to be trust. The church is built on trust, or the biblical word, faith. Faith in God and faith in his spirit in his people. And that's actually where my faith lies. The more I come to know Greg, for example, the more I love him and the more I trust him. But my trust, my faith, isn't actually in Greg's hymnal. My faith that I place, and it's, it's a heavy burden, I place in the Spirit of God, which is on him and in him powerfully. That is where my faith is. That is where my faith is in our eldership and in you. God in you. It's an interesting study on how finances were used in the church. Actually, we'll do this another time. There's an even more fascinating study is how finances, how the tithe was used in the Old Testament. Oh, when, when you study how, uh, how Israel, the Israelites used the tithe, I've never wanted to get more Old Testament than looking at this. Oh my goodness, these people knew how to party. God instructed them how to party. And they celebrated together. They enjoyed festivals and they ate and they drank and they honored God. Uh, we, we need to get onto that because I don't think we party well enough. But anyway, the New Testament, not as much partying. Um, uh, let's see. But there were three, I found three major categories that the uh, that giving was used in the New Testament church. The needs in the community, uh, the mission, the local staff and itinerant ministers, and the needs in the global church. First of all, the community. Now, most of the stories from the early church in Acts relate to the church taking care of the needy among them, a group uh, known as the widows. I don't think that's a metaphor. I think they were widows. I think they were women who'd lost their husbands and didn't necessarily have the means to support themselves. Um, and there are criteria spelled out later in Scripture for you know, what actually constitutes um, a, a, a widow who meets you know, the, the criteria for receiving uh, giving. But this, it turned out, was a huge ministry. Obviously, I don't know, maybe it was a war or something, but there were lots of, there were lots of widows uh, in Jerusalem. And the, the burden of this ministry was becoming so taxing on the, on the apostles that uh, they weren't finding time to, to preach and prepare their preaching and to pray for the church. Uh, so they were taking care of the widows, it seemed, all the time. Acts chapter 6, they, that's too much for them. And they are moved to raise up a group of spiritful disciples to take on this ministry. That their primary focus would be taking care of the needy and administering the resources to make sure that they were taken care of so that the apostles could focus on their calling, which was to preach and pray. Awesome. And this ministry ultimately moved beyond Jerusalem to be central to other fellowships. 
as uh, Paul devoted most of a chapter to Timothy on, on how to manage this ministry in Ephesus. Paul urged Timothy to specifically challenge the wealthy believers to share from their abundance and bless those who were in need. 1 Timothy chapter 6. So this is, this is one of the major things the church did with the resource it brought in. Taking care of the poor, taking care of the needy, the widows. The next one uh, is the mission of the gospel. Paul and the other apostles were devoted to the full-time ministry of the gospel and pastoring the church. Everyone, everyone needs food to eat. Even Jesus, going without food for, for 40 days, at the end of it, he was very hungry, and then he had a big feed. We all need to eat. We all need clothes on our back. You really want me to be wearing clothes. Just take that on faith. We all need a place to lay our head. We all need a home. And this is no less the case for full-time ministers. Without going into a discussion on the truism that we are all full-time ministers of the gospel, which, yes, that's true. But while most of the room here are full-time ministers of the gospel, you also have a job in the world, in the marketplace, that pays you. Uh, while expecting you not to preach the gospel too forcefully while at work. There is another category of people who have a particular calling on their life, and that is to serve full-time in the ministry of the church. And these people, uh, they need to eat too. Paul is an interesting study in this area. There were seasons in his ministry where he supported himself. Actually, it's a, it's a phrase we, uh, we, we call tent making. Tent making was his actual trade. He made tents from, uh, from materials. But uh, when, a, when a minister works part-time or even full-time to support their ministry, which they do in and around that, we call that tent making. And as the example that Paul uh, followed in some seasons of his life. There's a particular uh, season that we hear about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, and 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 10. When he was ministering in Thessalonica, he was ministering to a, to a young and very immature church. And they had, a, they had an issue with idleness, about, uh, with not working, and an issue with, with money. Now, as an apostle serving the church full-time, he would have a right to expect support from them, that they would look after his needs. But in their immaturity, they weren't in a place to actually deal with that. And he didn't want money to become a barrier for them receiving what it is that God wanted to do in them at that time. And so he took it upon himself to work even harder and go back to his trade and support himself and his associates so that the money thing didn't get in the way until they were in a place of maturity when they could see something better than what they were doing. And so he made that choice. But then at other times in his ministry, he was supported by uh, wealthy benefactors from, um, from other parts of the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 7-9. And this, this verse in Philippians 4, 
You Philippians know in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. And at other times, Paul was supported by those in the community that he was ministering to. Acts chapter 28, 10 to 11, and Romans 16, 1 to 2 references there. Paul's word to his protege in 1 Timothy 5 is as true today as it was then. The elders who would direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. The scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and workers deserve their wages. It is a biblical and contemporarily relevant truth that men and women who serve God full-time in the church should be paid, that we should look after them. And yes, I have a vested interest in this point because this is the calling on my life, at least for this season. And I've got a mortgage and school fees, hungry mouths to feed. But I don't get a bonus if this goes well, by the way. If the tithe comes up, I'm not getting a pay rise or a bonus. Am I? Yeah. This isn't about bumping tithe numbers. This is about the maturity of the church. What is the stumbling block that is holding us back from giving everything to him? Are we the generous people that he is calling us to be? And I said this last week and I'll say it again. For me, tithing isn't even about generosity. Tithing for me is where it's about my honor of God with finances. My generosity starts after that point. And giving to the church would, would just be one illustration of a truly generous heart as far as I'm concerned. I want to be generous all the time. I used to think because I tithed that I was generous and I ticked that box. I've done what God requires of me and I can leave it there. But anyone else who came to me in need, well, I've already given. I've given to God. That's not generous at all. That's religious, self-deluded. But I'm not that, I'm not that guy anymore. The other area where the New Testament church gave was the wider family of God. There was, there was no such thing as a denomination back then. Depending on what statistics you read, I quoted 30,000, 40,000 different Christian denominations around the world. There was a time when there wasn't a denomination. There was just the church. The church in this place, the church in that place. But they, they were one. They were led and pastored by the same people who had the same spirit. And they looked after each other. They were all brothers and sisters. And when the church family in another city or country was suffering and in need, the believers around the world would dig deep and they would support them. Acts chapter 11. Verse 27, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. 
The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the believers living in Judea. And as they did, they did this, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. I love this. Not not because, well, see, I've, I've, I've seen, you know, appeals for the Sudan and Ethiopia over the years, and it's moved me to want to give. They didn't, they didn't have any moving pictures of little children with distended bellies. They had a prophetic word. So the famine hadn't happened yet, but a prophet told them it was coming. And they just gave on faith, not because they were emotionally manipulated to, but they gave in faith on prophecy and because they had a generous heart. That is awesome. I get, I get moved emotionally to give. It might not, it might not always look like it, but, I, but I, I'm a bit of a softie. I'm a bit of a softie and um, I, I get moved to, to give all the time, but uh, that, 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 that's, that's my emotions kicking in. And that's, that's fine, that's awesome. But uh, giving in faith, that is where I want to be. There are other accounts in Romans 15, 2 Corinthians 8, where Paul urges the church to excel in the grace of giving. And this is, this is a practice that has a long legacy here at The Rock. A legacy of sowing and investing and giving to the church around the world, particularly in developing nations. Long legacy, uh, uh, particularly in Mexico over the years, in India, and more recently in Cambodia. I love that we do that. It's not just about what God's doing here and empire building. It's recognizing that there is only one empire, and it's not the rock. It is the kingdom of God. And the Lord has placed this word and moved our elders to to sow and to give to the to the kingdom in Cambodia, and that that is just awesome. And and in some cases, to to give really really generously, generosity, giving, loving, hospitality, charity these were an integral part of the character and practice of the New Testament church. And they need to be today as well. The ongoing challenge for those responsible for stewarding the financial resources here at The Rock is trusting that God will release the resource required to fund the vision that he has given us and using what he has released efficiently and in his will. So I want to ask you to pray for our elders. They carry a burden for us that is, I don't know how you do it. But we need to pray for them. Pray that they would use the resource that God puts in our hands prophetically, with integrity, and with diligence for our elders and for our delegated leaders who administer the funds. So, what is the moral here? Once again, I haven't got tithing forms out waiting for you uh, in the foyer, or as I've seen quite successfully, we haven't got tithing forms on a clipboard that we're going to pass around now. 
We're not going to do that. That would be too. That would be too easy. It would be too easy just to fill out some details on a form and get an automatic payment going. And it doesn't require you to be generous. God wants something more than that. He wants us to let him change who we are and how we think. He wants to change our priorities. That's hard. We need to loosen our grip on what God has put in our hands. We hold on so tight. When we loosen our grip on money, it allows God to move in a whole other area of our lives and bless his people and fulfill his will. Saw an image on my grandfather's farm once of this this pond that had um, had run off on the farm. The pond it was stagnant. It was nasty, and there was no no way for the runoff and for the for the water to to go anywhere else. This thing was fetid. It was nasty. But uh, next to that, there was a stream. It wasn't it wasn't really pooling. The stream ran clean through the farm. It was full of white bait. I received the bounty of that stream. Reflecting on it later, thought about about the resource God puts in our hands. And there's there's two things that can happen to that resource. Well, well, there's three really. You can spend it on yourself. Or um, you can pond it, you can pull it. Or you can let it run through your hands. Let it run through. And saving it all up in a bank account, investing it, pulling it. If it's not running through and running out, it becomes stagnant, it becomes brackish, it becomes toxic, and it starts to kill part of you. Kill part, the part of you that is him, his spirit speaking to you. Whereas if the water runs through you clean, it actually, it actually washes you. It washes away greed. It washes away selfishness because you're letting it run through your hands to bless others. And this is the image he gave me to think about that. I was thinking about my responsibility as the dad in my home to take care of my family. It's my responsibility to prepare for their future. I've got to be saving. I've got to be investing. I've got to be thinking about my retirement. I've got to be thinking about all these things to take care of them because that's my responsibility. He said, no, it's not. Whose responsibility is it? To look after you, son. Oh, okay, it's yours, Lord. Your wife, your children, are they yours or are they mine? Whose responsibility is it to look after them? Do you want to put their security in your financial decisions? Do you want to put their security in your capacity to earn? Or do you want them to build their security like you say you want it for yourself in me? Yeah, see, I have lived by faith so much of my life and I have lived voluntarily uh, relying on the generosity of the church. I, I can do that for myself. But doing it for my family is a whole other thing. I need faith not just for me. I need faith for them. 
So this is what he's been doing in me. Jesus spoke to this. Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or what your family will eat or drink. Don't worry about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Another account in Luke 12 sheds even more light on this. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, ah, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Yeah, see, that just sounds financially just so onto it, financially prudent. Like, I want him managing my hedge fund. That's awesome. But that is not the kingdom of God. There is always enough money and resources to fulfill the vision God has given us. The vision that he has given your family, has given you. The vision that he has given his church. The resource is there. We're just holding on to it really tight. And not releasing it to let him do what he wants with it in our lives and in the life of his church. Getting on board with God's plan means committing to it financially. So whether it's the poor overseas, the poor, the needy that you meet in your life, the vision here at The Rock or what God is doing through us in other places, we need to let go and let him do in us and through us what he wants to do. We need to give like we actually love him more than we love our stuff. We need to live like we truly are wholehearted disciples of Jesus. We need to live and give like he did. The Father not even sparing His Son, but giving His Son for us. And of course, generosity is not limited to what we do with our money, money in our bank accounts. True generosity is exercised with everything that we have. 
the time, the time we have? Are we generous with, give it, with giving that? I know some people, the most valuable resource they believe they have is their time. They have plenty of money, but time is so limited. You can't really get more time. It's, it's, it's only 24 hours in a day. You can make more money, but you can't get your time back. But are we generous with that as well? Are we serving? Are we giving time to our, our neighbors, to, to the church? The skills that, and gifts that we have been given or have acquired, are we generous with those? Maybe you can help someone with the skills that you have. Are you generous when you see a need to use what God has given you to bless them, to bless his church? The free lending of, of other stuff, holiday homes, vehicles, fridges, washing machines, guitars, food. Are we letting it run through our fingers and letting God bless people through us? Are we recognizing the blessing that we have is not just for our comfort, but is to bless others as well? In light of God's word this morning, there are two things I want to challenge you to start doing from today. The first so I want you to pray, as I am, that the Holy Spirit would transform our minds so that we can see wealth and property and the resources that we have as they truly are in the kingdom of God. That we would see them as God's resources in our hands for his glory. That is a radically different perspective to what the world has. And so we need him to do a work in us for us to see things that way. And secondly, that we would get into the habit of giving. Not religiously, but out of a cheerful and generous heart. And it doesn't have to start off in some ridiculous demonstration. You don't need to go and sell the batch today and bring that money in place it at Greg's feet next Sunday. Oh, he'd love that. It'd be cool. It needs to be authentic. It needs to be real. And it needs to be something which is, which is a part of your life. So maybe it's giving away some of your free-range eggs. I've got a few quite productive chooks. And I, uh, I love, I mean, I love eating them, but I love giving them away. I love being a, a visitor in my home. I love being able to give them a, give them a half dozen, give them a dozen eggs. Hey, here you go. I love that. I love, we've got a room downstairs. I love giving that room to people and having people stay with us who have need. I love that. Lending a car, giving a car away. I, I, I just, that. I want to be characterized not by my religious practices, but what flows out of my heart. Jesus said, it's not that what goes into us that makes us unclean, it's what comes out. And I want what comes out of me to be clean, and sweet, and a blessing. So I want to continue to practice this stuff. I want people who come to my home to receive hospitality and generosity 
and leave with the grace of God because of what they receive from us. And I'm saying, and, and I'm, the, I'm seriously the least, I think, of the generous people in my life. I'm the least of these. I'm surrounded by generous people. And that continues to inspire me. People who are giving away cars. People who, there's this family here who's given tens of thousands, just off their own bat, tens of thousands to the work in Cambodia. Just, just following the prompting of God and just allowing that generosity to manifest. There are life groups who are helping each other, paying bills when people are struggling, when people have fallen on hard times. And there are those who who give here when it's hard. Like the, the widow that Jesus mentioned who gave out, gave out of her poverty. There are people who give here generously to the church even when it is hard. They're not giving out of their excess. They're giving as a sacrifice because of their love for him. And he sees that. He sees the heart that moves him to do that. And that moves him. Ultimately, there is, there is one thing that God wants you to give him. He doesn't care about your money. He doesn't need your money. You know that, right? What he asks of you is a bit bigger than that. What he wants from you is your life. He wants all of it. Not a part of it. Not the part of it you're comfortable giving. Not the Sunday part of your life. He wants your life. But there is no one you could give your life to that would look after it better than Him. And the return on this beyond your dreams. If you haven't ever given your life to him before, I want to extend that invitation to you as he does constantly. Extend that invitation to give your life to him this morning. And he will look after you. And he will give you an inheritance like you cannot imagine. An eternal inheritance in his kingdom as his child. And if you have already made that commitment, as I imagine most of the room has, I ask you this morning to examine yourself and see whether you have indeed sacrificed all and given everything to him. I know that when I gave my life to the Lord, I only gave it in part. I gave as much as I was able to at the time. And part of my journey of coming more into him is giving more up. So my question to close this morning is what is he asking you to give up today? What is he asking you to surrender today?
I can't comprehend the love that moves you to give up and sacrifice that most beautiful part of yourself, your son Jesus, to give to give him for me. To him to go to the cross for me, I do not understand that gift. I do not understand the love that would move you, Lord, to give me breath. That you would imagine me and create me and put me on this earth. That I would be able to know you and be in relationship with you as your son. I don't understand what would move you to want to do that. What kind of love is this? I don't understand it, Lord, but I I thank you and I love you for it. That you have withheld nothing from me, Lord. You have favored me as your son, given me so many good things and watched over me and protected me and drawn me closer to you. And Lord, I know there's so much more you're going to continue to give for me and for each of my brothers and sisters here this morning. Lord, and I want to live in response to your generosity. I want to live in gratitude and absorb your generous love, allowing it to transform me so that I would become like you, truly generous, that there is nothing that I would withhold from you. There's nothing that I'd hold back from you. There's nothing I'd hold back from from those who, who I encounter who are in need. I pray my first response would be to give just as yours is. Lord, you understand the fallen mindset that makes us hard for me and makes it hard for us, Lord. And I pray that you would rip that down. You would rip down every argument against giving and generosity, Lord. And you would give us your mind, a new mind that sees the world the way you see it. That sees your kingdom the way that it truly is. Help us, Lord, to be like you. So this morning, Lord, I want to surrender myself anew to you. And I I want another part of me that wasn't given before to truly be surrendered to you. I pray for complete freedom from the love of money and, and material possessions. And I pray this for my, my friends here this morning as well, that you would that you would unlock whatever chains are holding the stronghold down. Release it from us, Lord. And I pray it help us to fully surrender ourselves to you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.